What is global catastrophic risk? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Steve Davies. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Steve Davies. Steve is the head of education at the Institute of Economic Affairs. Previously, he was program officer at the Institute for Humane Studies at George Mason University. He was a senior lecturer in the Department of History and Economic History at Manchester Metropolitan University and has also been a visiting scholar at the Social Philosophy and Policy Center at Bowling Green State University. A historian, he graduated from St. Andrews University in Scotland in 1976 and gained his PhD from the same institution in 1984. He has authored several books, including Empiricism and History, and was co-editor with Nigel Ashford of the Dictionary of Conservative and Libertarian Thought. His forthcoming book, Apocalypse Next, The Economics of Global Catastrophic Risks, will form the basis of most of our conversation today. Steve, welcome back to The Curious Task. Uh, great to be here again. And it's great to have you on again. So Steve, as you know, we base each of our episodes on a question and go wherever the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today is, what is global catastrophic risk? So we're basically going to explore your a lot of the content in your forthcoming book. So let's just, just start with, with the definitions and then we'll explore some yeah. concepts from there. So one thing I like um, is that, of course, you note that we need to be very clear about our terms, especially when it comes to global, catastrophic, and risk. So I'd like to yeah. go through them all separately. And I actually think doing this backwards at least helped me think of it a bit better. So let's yeah, actually start indeed. with risk. So, yeah. I mean, of course, you could take this where you'd like, but what? Uh, how do you approach the idea of risk when it comes to this full-term global catastrophic risk? I know okay. you noted that keys to understanding this are really understanding probability and cost, if I remember correctly. Yes, exactly. Um, in this context, uh, a risk means an event, a possible event, which would have bad consequences, costs for uh, somebody, uh, depending on how big it is. And this uh, risk uh, has a probability of happening. So we use the term, rather confusingly, we use the term risk to refer to both the event itself and the probability of its happening. So that's that's the first part of the term. The other thing is that um, risk means, in this context, therefore, the size of the risk is determined by the extent of the damage that would be caused were it to happen, multiplied by the probability of its happening, which is usually a fraction of some kind. Uh, now, what that means is there's a trade-off here. So you can have uh, a very high probability risk, but where the consequence is actually relatively trivial, or you could have a low probability risk, but where the consequences of it were to happen would be absolutely massive. And that second one can actually be a bigger risk uh, when you look at the final product of the multiplication than the first one. Uh, and so that's what risk means in this context. It means a possible adverse event uh, and the probability of that adverse event happening. And if I remember correctly, you noted that um, you sort of warn your readers off the bat that it's it's very important to make to distinguish between sort of what we often um, colloquial, colloquially think of as risk, like, you know, a chance of X, Y, and Z happening, because uh, there's a yeah. very specific way that when we talk about global catastrophic risk that you refer to probability, and if something actually were to happen, like if you to say X percent chance or, 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 or you yeah. know, are listed. So could you actually explore that a bit? Because I think that's key to, to the understanding here. Uh, I think the key thing here is that you can say that... Um, in a given moment of time, there's a percentage chance that something, the event, the risk will happen. So you can say there's maybe a one in 10 chance, a one in 100 chance. Uh, but typically with most risks, you have that risk is always possibly happening. So you can think of time as being a succession of moments, if you will, and the moments may be years, some shorter time period, like months or days, whatever it is. Uh, and so the, the cumulative probability of the risk happening is the num the chance of it's happening at any one of those instances multiplied by the number of times it happens. So let's take a very obvious and simple example. If you are stupid enough to play Russian roulette, 
on each individual round, there is a one in six chance that you kill yourself. But the cumulative probability of doing it six times, assuming you don't spin the barrel each time, is 100%. Even if you do spin the barrel, uh, if you keep on doing it long enough, the chance that you will actually blow your brains out approaches 100%. Uh, so that's what we mean by probability here. There's a difference between the probability of it's happening in each individual event and the cumulative probability of something happening given a long enough time. So that's one of the big distinctions you need to make. The other big distinction you need to make is between what is called ergodic and non-ergodic uh, probability uh, distributions. This is a very, very important distinction. Uh, and it may seem hard to grasp, but Nassim Nicholas Taleb has a very simple way of explaining what the difference is, which many people have adopted. Suppose you have 100 people who all go to a casino. And what in that 100 people, what you will find is that uh, some people will win a lot of money, some people will lose everything they've got, some people will be in between those two extremes. The point is that for the whole uh, aggregate of people, the hundred people or whatever it is, that process can go and go on indefinitely. This is called an ergodic distribution. Now, suppose on the other hand, you have one person and he goes to the, to the uh, gambling place every uh, day. Sometimes he will win, but sooner or later, he's going to lose everything. Now, at that point, he's not going to go to the casino anymore because he's lost everything. He's been cleared out. That is called a non-ergonic probability distribution. There is some, if something happens and given enough time, it is bound to happen, the whole process comes to a full stop. Uh, and so this is very important to realize because certain kinds of risks are non-ergodic. If the risk, the potential event happens, that is the end. Nothing else will come along after that. Uh, and so it's very important to realize when you're dealing with an ergodic or non-ergodic risk. Excellent. I think it's a great chance to segue into the next point here because of obviously there's different kinds of global risks. So as I said, we're doing the term backwards global catastrophic risk. So when we talk about catastrophic, it seems that this is the idea that um, it's the severity of the cost of the risk if it were to actually happen, really. Yes. Yes. Uh, quite clearly, you can, you can grade risks by the severity of the consequences should they happen. So for some risks, the consequence is relatively trivial or minor. So you may suffer like a personal injury, a mild injury, you may injure your finger, for example, or uh, have, a, have a slight graze on your knee if you fall over. So there's always the chance, the risk that you will fall over while you're walking or running. And that if you do, the consequence will be maybe you'll take some skin off your knee. That's a trivial consequence. On the other hand, sometimes the consequence of the risk is very, very severe. So let's say uh, what you're doing is not running but driving a car. Uh, there's always the risk of an accident. And it could be that the risk of the accident is terminal for you. You are killed or you are permanently uh, impaired, you, you're crippled as a result of injuries that you receive. In that case, the damage to you is catastrophic because it has permanently ended your life or permanently reduced your ability to enjoy your life. Uh, in either of those cases, you're talking about a catastrophic risk for you as an individual because the damage is so severe uh, that it uh, basically ends your life completely or fundamentally and radically impairs and reduces it. And so that's what we mean by catastrophic risk. It's a risk which, if it were to happen, uh, would bring about permanent, irreversible and really, really bad uh, terminal consequences. Uh, so again, to use the previous term, this is a non-ergodic risk. It means that, you know, you, you are the whole, in this case, your life, the succession of, you know, probable events that make up your life has suddenly come to a complete stop. Uh, so that's what catastrophic means in this context. 
Right. And when we when we add global into this, uh, it sounds silly to talk, stop and even talk about a word that most people know. But but in this case, especially as I read through your material, like when if we take the ext- most extreme global catastrophe, you mean truly global here. Not a lot of people are effective because I think people colloquially also use this term to say, oh, it, you know, it's a global phenomenon. But in this case, you actually mean global if we get to that extreme. Right. Yeah. Yes, precisely. So a global risk is a risk which, if it is to happen, will have effects for the entire planet uh, and all of the human beings who live on it. So a global catastrophic risk is one that will, if it were to happen, have catastrophic risks not just for a locality or a part of the world, but for the entire world. So, for example, the eruption of Vesuvius uh, in the first century uh, AD wiped out and was catastrophic for the populations of Pompeii and Herculaneum. Their environment was destroyed, they were all killed. But it didn't affect the whole of Italy, much less the whole of the Roman Empire or the planet. So it was a catastrophic risk, but a local one. Uh, Even the Black Death was not a truly global catastrophic risk. It wiped out about half the population of uh, Eurasia, but it left Southern Africa and the Americas untouched. So a global catastrophic risk is a risk with catastrophic results, which should happen, which affects the entire human species and the entire planet. Uh, That makes it quite a restricted category of of risks because many risks which are catastrophic for part of the world are not global, and conversely, there are many global risks which are not catastrophic because the offences, the results, I should say, are not sufficiently uh, terminal or uh, severe. Excellent. Okay, I think that covers global catastrophic risk. And, and as you said at the end there, people, as they start wrestling with these concepts in, in their head, should remember as they're listening that, you know, different variables and different pillars of these concepts can can uh, come into play in at different levels. As Steve just said, remember that, you know, something could be catastrophic and not necessarily global and then ver- vice versa as well. You could have something global that happens but isn't necessarily catastrophic. One more um, stop here just to set our terms, uh, Steve, before we jump into some other concepts is that uh, I want to talk about the idea of the, the duration of the effects. You touched on it briefly when we talked about yeah. ca- catastrophe, but I think it's very important that we stop here and talk about this idea of single generation, multi-generation, and so on, because yeah. I, I think that's another sort of pillar to add into our conversation as we move forward among many. Yeah, very much so. Uh, normally, and in, in most discussions, the concept of duration is included in uh, the, the notion of ca- something being catastrophic, because something that is final, uh, you know, which it has quality non-urbidicity, uh, therefore is by def- almost by definition catastrophic. Now, what you can distinguish, however, is between something which is pr- absolutely devastating, catastrophic even, but where the effects are not particularly long-lasting, and something where, something where the effects uh, are permanent, or they don't affect merely the people alive at the time the event happens, but they affect all future generations. That's a kind of extra whole level uh, of the catastrophic nature of a certain kind of risk. So if, for example, you imagine, say, a pandemic that wipes out um, a very large part of the planetary population, you could call that a global catastrophe. But if, if it turns out that the effects of that are absolutely terrible for the generation that experiences it but thereafter things recover life goes on better it's not on the same scale as a pandemic that wipes out the entire human species an extinction level event Mm -hmm. um, or an existential risk as it's actually called or uh, the kind of thing uh, posited in uh, you know don't look up where you have a comet striking the earth and it destroys uh, absolutely everything. Uh, th- in those cases, you have damage which is not only catastrophic and global, but permanent. It's never going to be reversed. It's going to last forever. And that's a kind of extra element to the concept. Not all global catastrophic risks have this quality of permanence. Many do, but not all of them. Uh, but it's an additional whole level to the, the, the concept, if you will. Excellent. And We'll definitely get to some examples of global catastrophic risk and things to be concerned about, but I do want to park that for now because I sort of want to move to a, a slightly different gear here and and start sort of touring what the conversation around uh, global catastrophic risk is. Um, 
So why is concern about global catastrophic risk on, on the rise now, either, either generally speaking among academics and policy uh, people interested in policy or even yourself? What's, what's it about 2021 that we should be talking about this? And, and of course, well, 2022. I, I, I'm stuck in 2021 because of the pandemic. So. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't we all? Um, the, the, uh, I think it's fair to say that concern about global catastrophic risks has been rising. It first appears in the immediate aftermath of World War II, and among scientists, that is, and it's been increasing steadily in the last two to three decades. Now, there's a very simple reason for this, which is that we need to be much more worried about this than our ancestors did. And that's why people, scientists, very smart people in many cases, are now more concerned with it. Human beings have always faced global catastrophic risks. Uh, there's always been the probability, the possibility, for example, that an asteroid will strike the planet and wipe us all out, the way one did the dinosaurs 70 million years ago. There's always been the possibility of a supervolcano eruption, which again would have the effect of, uh, you know, plunging the world into an ice age, pretty much wiping out the human species. Came close to happening uh, a few tens of thousands of, of years ago. These are all natural phenomena. Uh, they're all phenomena that human beings have absolutely no control over. Now, what is happening in the modern world is two things, and these are the two things that mean that we are and should be more worried about uh, global catastrophic risks than our ancestors were. The first is that um, the nature of modern society makes us more susceptible and vulnerable to many kinds of events than was the case earlier in history. Modern society is much more globalized, much more interconnected, much more complex, and therefore, in many ways, much more fragile than uh, was the case even 50 or 60 years ago, never mind 100 or 200 years ago. So I'm old enough to remember the Hong Kong flu pandemic of 1968 to 1969. And although that was uh, not as serious an illness as COVID-19, it was still bad enough. It killed you know, a significant number of millions of people worldwide, but it didn't have anything like the impact on the world economy and world society that COVID has had. And one reason for that is that our society back then uh, was not as complex and interconnected as it is now. We didn't have, for example, the kind of complex global supply chains that we do now, which means that the economic disruption caused by that flu pandemic was far less than the economic disruption that uh, COVID has caused. And so in many ways, the nature of the world that we have created in modernity uh, means that we're more susceptible to uh, catastrophic risks. The effect of certain events which would not have been catastrophic in the past would be catastrophic now, is what I'm saying. But the second, and I think the main reason why we should be more worried, is that actual human activity is now creating certain kinds of global risk which did not exist before. Uh, and it's also making certain natural risks more severe than they would otherwise be or more probable than they would otherwise be. To take the first case, for example, nuclear war. Uh, I think pretty, pretty much everyone would agree that a general worldwide nuclear war would be a global catastrophe. It would destroy civilization. It would probably make it extremely difficult to reconstruct modern civilization. Uh, and it would have global effects both on the climate and you know, on global populations, anything you care to think about. The point is, of course, is that such a, an event was not possible until human activity created nuclear weapons during World War II. There are a number of other kinds of risks like that, uh, which arise only because of things human beings are doing. Uh, and we might be able to talk about some of them. At the same time, we're also, through our own activities, increasing both the potential costs of uh, certain risks and making them more likely. And so when you put all that together, what it means is that the reason why many people and institutes all around the world are now concerned very much with global catastrophic risk is that we're, by our own activities, both creating more possible risks and making others more likely than they were before uh, to have catastrophic effects and increasing their probability of happening. So both of the variables, the probability and the severity, are being increased by things that we as a species are doing.
And exactly. And as, as you were saying, and as readers will see in the forthcoming book when they, when they get it, um, the, this, the, these, these, are, these are serious topics and, and definitely there's a lot of merit to thinking about them. But so my next question isn't meant to say that, that it's not. It's sort of a for the sake of argument sort of thing. Since World War II as well, there might be some people with memories that tell them, ah, during my lifetime, I've heard a lot of the end of the world predictions yeah. um, and, and, you know, they haven't come true, et cetera, et cetera. I think one of the ones I can think of, um, for, for example, is, is uh, one that continuously comes up is the sort of linear sort of model of like resource depletion that people often hearken back to. And basically say, oh, it was predicted at one point we'd run out of lumber, run out of food or whatever, and it didn't happen. And, and we made it through. Obviously, that's different than a, than a super volcano incident. But my, but my point ultimately is that how is this idea of global catastrophic risk and the idea and modeling of risk uh, different than some of the other methods or other thinking around sort of the, the end of the world before? What, why is the idea of doing this through like a, a GCR sort of model and thinking, uh, in your mind at least, ha- have a lot more merit and deserve like serious attention rather than some of the things that might have popped up in either popular literature or whatever else well there are several things to say there um first of all um one very common kind of uh forecast or prediction as you describe is the kind of if this goes on argument in which people take a current trend and they extrapolate it into the future and say well if it goes on this long then everything is going to be you know we're going to end in total disaster the world will end um, the problem with that is that such pro- processes of that kind typically do not go on like that, either in nature or in human life. Uh, you very almost never find actual exponential curves, for example, in either the natural world or the human world. Uh, if you want to be technical about it, you almost always have an asymptotic curve in which after showing an exponential rise, the phenomenon you're talking about then flattens off or even goes into decline. And there are a number of mechanisms that bring this about. Um, market mechanisms, human ingenuity and creativity, for example, in responding to challenges, but also just natural phenomena, such as approaching natural limits and so on. So predictions of that kind should always be treated with scepticism because uh, normally they are, they are not going to actually come to pass it's discontinuous events, sudden abrupt changes that you need to worry about rather than predictions of that kind. Secondly, um, what many people find reassuring about thinking about global catastrophic risks, such as an asteroid impact, for example, is that these are very low probability. Uh, Catastrophic risks are almost all low probability events. Uh, That's a general rule of thumb. Uh, the the greater the damage that a possible event will cause, the lower the probability of that event. That's what you normally find. Conversely, things that cause trivial damage have pretty high probability, amounting to certainty in some cases. Uh, so you might feel reassured by this, but actually, in many cases, you should not, uh, for two reasons. One is that uh, the point I made earlier, if with many of these events, even if the chance is low, given enough time, it's bound to happen. So even if something has, let's say, for the sake of argument, a 1% probability, which means that in any one year, usually, there's a 1 in 100 chance it will happen, if you go on long enough, it will happen. And if the consequence of that happening is the end of everything, then that really is something you need to worry about. So you need to worry about a catastrophic event, even if it has a relatively low probability, uh, because you know that given enough time, it will happen. And if it does happen, that's it. Now, what then matters, of course, is exactly how low the probability is. If the probability is really, really, really low, you're talking about, you know, one in 100 million or one, even one in a million or something like that, then you can probably afford to relax because the amount of time that is probably going to elapse before it happens is so long that, you know, who knows what else may have changed in that time. Uh, You know, indeed, most importantly, we may well have developed technologies or other things which enable us to deal with or head off that, that possible event. Uh, so those those really, really low probability events are things you don't need to worry about. But the, that still leaves a large category of events which are low probability, but where the consequences are so severe that 
given the fact that we know they're bound to happen sooner or later, given enough time, you do need to worry about them. And then the final point is that in many cases, the probability is actually not as low as we like to think it is. Mm. Uh, there are various, this goes back to the point I made earlier, it may well be that we're talking about a phenomenon where human activity is making it more likely than we would want it to be. Uh, and so, uh, therefore, the probability is not really as low as you would like it to be. Um, an example of this is a pandemic. So if you look at the last 2,000 years, uh, we have had three absolutely catastrophic pandemics. Um, one in the second, third century AD, the so-called Antonine Plague, um, which we think was probably smallpox, one in the 6th, 7th century, the Plague of Justinian, which is bubonic plague, and of course the Black Death, also bubonic plague. We just narrowly escaped having a fourth pandemic on that scale at the end of the 19th century with the third great plague pandemic, which was contained within Asia and didn't get out. If it had, we would have had something like the Black Death again. Mm. Now, that suggests that the likelihood of a natural pandemic that kills about half the world's population is about one in 700 years. Um, but for various reasons, uh, things that we human beings are doing at the moment, the chance of that happening is actually about twice that. So we're talking about a one in 300 year mm -hmm. event, which means that in any one year, there's a 0.3% probability that it will happen. Now, that's actually significantly higher than people should be comfortable with. Um, and, of course, again, to reiterate my earlier point, it means that given enough time, it will happen. And so the only question is, will it happen a sufficiently long time in the future that by the time it does happen, we will have you know, found out enough or got enough knowledge and ability to be able to uh, mitigate its effects or uh, limit them? And I think that's actually an excellent place to take our break. So, so we'll do so right now. Everyone, you're listening to the Curious Task. I'm speaking with Steve Davies today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including... Janet Bufton, Chris Rondolo, and Peter Jaworski. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Steve Davies today. Steve, I think the first half of our conversation was great. I think we also ended the first part, uh, part of our conversation at, at almost the, the best time we could. You said, given enough time, these things will happen. So I think we should get into talking about what kind of things we're talking about mm -hmm. that may happen. And, and in your uh, work on this, you, you end up dividing uh, global catastrophic risks into categories and there are subcategories and so forth. And again, I'll say to our listeners in this kind of episode, there's there's no way we can get through all of this stuff or do it justice. So we encourage you to keep an eye out for the work when it does come out. But I would like to trace uh, these categories at a high level and then, and then get into some examples. So we, we touched on them a couple of times in, in our first chat, but we didn't really put a pin in it. One of the categories of global catastrophic risk is basically um, continuing natural risks or, or non-human made risks. Can, can you just elaborate on that a little further and perhaps provide some examples? Yeah. There, there, are, there are quite a few natural risks. Uh, there's, for example, the risk of a supervolcano eruption. Um, th these are enormous volcanic eruptions uh, which take place typically about once every half a million years or so um, and they have global effects they affect the entire planet's climate or a very very large part of the planet if one of them were to happen it would have absolutely disastrous effects for uh, you know, global civilization for example there's a large caldera underneath yellowstone park in north america which has erupted pretty regularly over the last few million years and if it was to erupt again it would cover virtually the whole of north america uh, in about a foot of volcanic ash as well as throwing colossal amounts of ash up into the planetary atmosphere now risks of that kind uh, and asteroid impact is another one um, are typically very low probability 
Plus, there's not a lot we can do about them. Uh, with asteroid impact, which is a rather topical one given recent film, of course, uh, there are various ways we could deal with that. We could and should certainly keep a lookout for things like asteroids or comets that are likely to come close to Earth's orbit. And we could also develop the kind of things that were talked about in the film I'm alluding to, you know, ways of diverting the path of any asteroid that we think is going to come too close to Earth. But generally speaking, with natural risks like that, A, the probability is very, very low, and B, uh, there's not a whole lot we can do about them. So we really need to live with them. What is more serious is natural risks where human activity is making the probability higher Mm -hmm. uh, or making the potential impact worse. This is the category of exacerbated or accelerated risk, correct? Yeah, that's right, yeah. So the the obvious example of this, uh, which I sort of alluded to in the first part, uh, is pandemics. So we've had about between 20 and 30 pandemics uh, over the last 2,000 years. We've had a lot more in the modern world than we did in the pre-modern world. We've had nearly 20 since uh, 1815. Now, the reason for that is some of the good features of the modern world, the fact that it's very highly interconnected and that people can now move around and travel a lot more easily and a lot more rapidly than they could before. Plus, we tend to live as a species in cities now, rather than in dispersed rural communities. Both of those things mean that it's much, much easier for a novel illness or an old and revived illness to spread right around the world very, very quickly, as we've seen with COVID-19. And so we're more susceptible to pandemics than we were in previous periods of history. But in addition, we are doing certain things as a species right now, which are making the chances of a truly devastating pandemic much more probable. Um, The major one is the way we conduct contemporary intensive livestock farming, which involves breeding very large amounts of animals in close proximity, uh, in highly unsanitary conditions in many cases, while dosing them heavily with antibiotics. Now, this is almost designed as a kind of experiment to produce novel pathogens, you would think. Uh, it's almost, it is guaranteed to produce lots and lots of novel pathogens. And also, because of the number of human beings who work in proximity with these animals, uh, to encourage opportunities for those pathogens to make the species jump into human beings. Uh, We've had a viral pandemic just now, but the real nightmare is that we get a bacterial pathogen uh, from, say, pigs or chickens, most likely, uh, which makes the jump to human beings, and which, because those animals have been dosed with antibiotics, is immune to most antibiotics. Mm. That would be a real catastrophe on the kind of Black Death scale or worse even. Uh, and so that, that's an example of how human activity is significantly increasing uh, the possibility of a truly catastrophic event. The other thing that's going on um, is misguided scientific experimentation where in the case of viral illnesses, there have been things, so-called gain-of-function experiments, uh, which is where you deliberately boost the infectiousness or virulence of a virus through various kinds of recombinant uh, RNA experimentation. And this is done in order to work out how better to combat viral infection. But the problem, of course, is that the benefits are uh, considerable, but they can be achieved in other ways, whereas The bad consequences, if, for example, you produce a truly lethal virus, which then escapes from the lab, Mm -hmm. are potentially species-ending, because you could end up producing a super pathogen, which wipes out the great majority of the human species. Uh, Now, even though you might think the chance of that is low, it's not low enough. There are labs taking place all the time. And even if you think the chance of it's happening is like one in 100,000, are you really prepared to take the bet of a 100,000 to one odds with human extinction being what happens if it comes up? So that's another example of an exacerbated risk. Uh, We are doing something, in this case, I think highly misguided scientific experiments, which simply should not be allowed, uh, which if they go wrong, uh, and there's a measurable and non-trivial chance that they'll go wrong, would have absolutely, you know, possibly terminal or existential uh, effects, extinction level effects. 
And I think that connects into an, another concern or another category, which is the the, the misuse or, or just simply the consequences of, of novel technologies. Um, yeah. Artificial intelligence, for example, is something that is starting to gain a lot more traction as far as uh, in the popular literature, uh, in, in many ways, excitement and also fear. So yeah. um, I, I guess it's sort of that artificial intelligence d- dystopia or disaster or anything from, uh, you know, the Terminator from the 1980s all the way up to the, the science fiction we enjoy now. I think that that's that's what you're getting at with with this sort of thing, more or less. Yes, this is another whole category, which is the potential catastrophic results of novel technologies. And artificial intelligence is the big one. This is the one that most of the people we spoke about earlier working at various research institutes around the world are really, really worried about. Uh, Now, there's two parts to this. The first is the extremely rapid progression of artificial intelligence. Um, Most... Uh, there have been a various number of surveys done of people working in this field and elsewhere. And the general consensus of the researchers uh, is that a human-level artificial intelligence or superior-to-human-level AI will be created uh, within no more than 40 years. Mm. And that's the kind of average uh, intel, using something called the Delphi method of um, assessing when people think something will happen. Interestingly, a- Asians and Asian scientists are much more, uh, think it will happen much sooner than scientists in North America and Europe. Mm. It's quite striking, the difference between people in different parts of the world. But anyway, the general consensus, therefore, is that we're looking at extremely powerful artificial intelligence in the very near future. Now, what this makes possible is something which was hypothesized way back in the 1960s, uh, which is something called an intelligence explosion where you have an AI, very powerful and capable, which then designs another AI, which is even more powerful than the previous one. And what this would lead to in a very short space of time is an explosive growth in the capacity of artificial intelligence. Now, this raises two possible risks. One is that this AI uh, becomes sentient. In other words, it becomes self-aware. Uh, And so the idea is that you create an artificial intelligence or entity, which is actually a self-conscious being, a self-conscious entity, in the same way that human beings and a number of other species are self-conscious. Now, the problem then is that this will be unbelievably powerful. And so if that is the case, we have to really hope that it likes us. Right. Um, or, the, or that it thinks of us as a, attractive pets. Right. Because if it, if it is, in the jargon of the people working on this, unaligned, in other words, it has incentives and interests that are not aligned with ours, it thinks of us being a nuisance or even a kind of plague that it wants to get rid of, uh, then quite likely such a powerful AI may exterminate itself. Now, the simple and um, not very satisfactory answers are that, well, we would design the AI not to do this. We would build in rules like Asimov's three laws of robotics saying you can't do this. The problem is that the whole thrust of artificial intelligence research is to have machines intelligence which can reprogram itself. Right. So by definition, such an AI would be able to rewrite its own programming and override constraints of that that kind. Um, and the other kind of argument is that, well, uh, it, this is what we're doing is we're projecting our own rather nasty nature onto the AI, but we don't know that. Are we prepared to take that risk? That's one possible risk. However, not everyone believes uh, that AI will become uh, sentient. Personally, I'm a skeptic about this myself. I think it's much more likely that you will. I think what that does is to conflate two different things, which are self-awareness and intelligence. I think it's much more likely you'll have artificial intelligence, which is incredibly powerful and very intelligent, but not self-aware. We don't really know what self-awareness is. That's the problem. Now, the chance there, though, is that what you'll get is an enormously powerful AI routine, which will, however do things in pursuit of the goals it's given by us, its creators, which turn out to be utterly disastrous. So to give the kind of perhaps throwaway example that's given, suppose an AI has set the job of working out the value of every single prime number. Since there's an infinite number of prime numbers, this would take an infinite amount of resources. And if the AI is sufficiently powerful, it might end up using up the entire planet's resources to do this, which would be 
absolutely catastrophic for everybody else, including human beings. Mm -hmm. So that's the other kind of risk, that you have non-sentient AI, which are given power or control over, let's say, key services or key resources, but which then malfunction in some way or which are badly designed. And as a result, there's some runaway process we can't control. So those are the two major catastrophic risks associated with AI. There are other novel technologies which also have possible risks. Nanotechnology is one that's often cited, although that's not at the same level of development as AI, for example. Right. And, and moving, moving on from there, if we talk about, for example, um, global catastrophic risk of uh, human will and destructiveness um that that's basically just my understanding and, and my reading of it is is just exactly as it sounds someone actually decides either either intended or unintended to actually pursue a set of actions and that result in the consequence of of game over basically like nuclear war or terrorism or, an, yeah. or a final act of yeah. terrorism Yes, precisely. I mean, the point is, what you have here is things that bad stuff that human beings have always been up to, such as tyranny, terrorism, war. Uh, you know, these have been going on throughout the whole of human history. Uh, but the point is that modern technology means that these could be uh, done uh, with consequences that would be both global and catastrophic in their effects. Uh, terrorism is the uh, obvious example to think about here, really. Um, it's quite possible now to imagine a terrorist getting their hands on some kind of technology or doing something which could destroy modern civilization beyond its ever being repaired, which would count as a catastrophic result. It's worth saying that conventional political terrorists are not something to worry about because they actually have concrete goals. They don't want to destroy everything. They want to achieve a particular political end. Uh, so they're not going to do that. What is more serious is the threat of, say, a kind of eco-terrorist of the Unabomber type who thinks that right. human beings are a plague on the planet and need to be wiped out. Now, a lot of the focus is on terrorists getting hold of nuclear weapons, but I'm actually much less concerned about that. That's not really a risk we should be worried about because people don't realize just how delicate nuclear weapons are uh, and how difficult it is to keep them in working order. So absent state sponsoring, which I think is incredibly unlikely to happen, it's very unlikely that terrorists will actually be able to do this. On the other hand, terrorists getting hold of a bioweapon or a, uh, a mutated virus, for example, that is a much more serious uh, threat. Mm. Uh, and that's what we should be worried about. Uh, similarly, with wars, um, a nuclear war, we should still be concerned about this. Uh, we tend to think this is a risk that's gone away, but it hasn't. The chance of a nuclear war happening, probably by accident or misjudgment, is still significantly higher uh, than we would really want it to be. And it's all very well to say, oh, well, you know, we haven't had a major war for a long time. That's what lots of people were saying around 1900, 1910, and look what happened right. then. Exactly. Uh, and that wasn't because of anybody, uh, you know, malevolently planning a war. It was because the people in 1914 stumbled into a war because of misjudgments and errors on their part. Uh, so we've got to be very, we should be very concerned about the continuing risk of a, uh, a global nuclear war or some other, even a major conventional war, which given the nature of conventional weapons now, would be much, much worse than even World War II was. Mm -hmm. and, I, and many people also don't realize just uh, how close we were to, to use your phrase, stumble into all-out nuclear war during the Cold War era, for instance. Indeed. There's a lot, more, a lot more close calls than we, we would be comfortable with. Yeah, absolutely, yes. Uh, and, you know, if people were aware of just how close we came a couple of times, never mind the Cuban Missile Crisis, quite a few other cases, uh, then they might be a bit less relaxed about this. Absolutely. And I, I would like to spend more time on, on some of these categories here, but as our time's in its, its last swing, I want to get to some other things. But, be, but before we depart the, uh, the sort of tour of the different kind of global catastrophic risks, I, I want to talk about um, what you sort of mean with this question mark here is un unknown risks. We've talked about many different examples. Why do you end off with a category of unknown risks? Well, because there are always some things that may happen that we don't know about. By definition, and these are by definition black swans um, in Nassim Nicholas Taleb's famous category. They are events which have no precedent to guide us, and therefore they are totally unexpected. Uh, we have no idea what they are because until they happen, once they do happen, we tend to think, oh, we could see this was going to happen, it was bound to happen. Uh, but actually, until they happen, we've no idea what they are. So there, there's always something, there's always a joker out there. Uh, some possible event 
that you know we can't even imagine what it is right now because it's beyond or outside all of our prior experience. And shifting gears a little bit here, one thing you note in the in the literature that you find uh, troubling is that there's a, a notable lack of, of economists in, in all these discussions. Mm-hmm. So tying in everything yeah. we, we've talked about today, why, why is one of your takeaways that there's a lack of economists in the discussion uh, disturbing to you at this point in time? I think it's because of a defamation, uh, a defamation professionnelle, as they would say in France and Quebec, uh, that economists tend, have come to suffer from over the last 50 to 70 years or so, uh, which is a kind of mistaken notion, I think, of um, economic individualism or uh, methodological individualism, uh, which leads to, uh, in practice, and very often explicitly in theory as well, an obsessive focus on the immediate present uh, and the here and now, and a radical discounting of the future. And so uh, in in the book, I, I take to task an economist that I normally respect enormously, uh, Darren Ashimoglu, uh, and he is arguing against Toby Ord, the British philosopher Toby Ord's arguments that we need to take steps now to prevent to take action against the possible future risk of a runaway unlined AI. And Ashimoglu's argument is, well, the trouble is that doing this will distract us from paying attention to more short-term immediate problems. Now, that, I think that's kind of willfully obtuse, because on the one hand, it assumes that there's a trade-off between the two things, that doing uh, stuff to deal with long-term catastrophic risks or potential risks um, is somehow at the expense of do, dealing with more immediate and higher probability risks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's actually simply not true. Very often, it's the same thing that you need to do. Uh, so there, there isn't a trade-off of that kind. The other problem, though, is the implicit argument is that, well, we don't want to take any action against potential future risks which are low probability because to do so will impair the welfare of people who live right now. Now, that that is extraordinarily short-sighted. It implies that you simply radically discount the future. You assume that the future just doesn't matter. Uh, And that is an extraordinary way of thinking. Human beings historically have never thought like that. Most people care about the interests uh, and the future prospects of their children, for example, or in many cases, their long-term descendants. Back in the Middle Ages, people built cathedrals uh, over a period of centuries in some cases. They would engage in building this, this great structure, knowing that it would not be completed until the lifetime of their grandchildren, in many cases, even then. Now, that kind of long-term thinking is radically discounted by uh, contemporary economists, because they're thinking as well, the discount rate is such that anything more than 10, 15 years in the future has a value of zero. So why worry about it? And that also means that risks don't need to be worried about. Let the future take care of itself. That's extraordinarily short-sighted because, as I said earlier, given enough time, some of these things are bound to happen. And when they happen, that's the end of everything, if they do happen. Uh, So um, unless you're a total psychopath and think that your own life here and now is the only thing that matters, you should definitely be concerned about it. And so I think, unfortunately, what the economists are doing is developing a way of thinking or articulating a way of thinking that does actually, if you like, channel the feelings of sociopaths, uh, Mm. that really it's only what's going on right now that matters. Now, this is not an inherent or necessary feature of economics. I think it's a uh, a consequence of the way economists have come to work and think over the last uh, 40 to 50 years or so. Uh, and it's something they need to get out of. And, and just to underline that point there, it's interesting that you touch on, yes, there's the the sort of time scale part of the discussion, which is the short versus long term. But just as you're saying towards the end there too, there's also even in the immediate uh, time frame this idea that it, individual versus community, there's a lot to think about there in yeah. terms of the way we're thinking about uh, costs and benefits as well, right? It, absolutely. It, uh, and it, it is a case of thinking purely in terms of a very narrow and artificial notion of what uh, motivates individual actors, the idea that it's basically self-interest, personal self-interest that motivates them, which is clearly false. 
you know, people are concerned about a lot more than their personal self-interest. They're still self-interest motivated, but that self-interest is much more encompassing and wide-ranging than simply uh, the actual solitary person. Uh, and, you know, again, historically, economists like Smith or uh, the other great classical economists or Alfred Marshall, for example, have never thought that way. It's very much a phenomenon of the recent academy that uh, is thinking this way. Absolutely. And um, I'd like to sh- switch us to our last gear here and talk about, um, of course, we can't do it, as I said, with, with the other things we were talking about, we can't do it f- full justice in this conversation, but I still do want to trace uh, some details on how we could frame our thinking around handling global catastrophic risk. Yeah. Um, so w- one thing you note, and you, uh, you mentioned it earlier, which, which, I, which I'm glad you used the turn of phrase, you, you mentioned some odds and you said, would you, would you like to take that bet? So that brings me to the first point I want to talk to you about, which is you say one, one way we have to think about GCR is we need to make bets rather than forecasts. So could you get into that yeah. a little bit? Absolutely. Uh, And this is a principle, by the way, which is not only applicable to this topic, it's more generally applicable, I think. Um, There's too much focus in a lot of discussion, not just about this topic, but other things as well, on what is going to happen in the future. And then people saying, well, because we predict that X is going to happen, therefore we should do Y. Uh, The pandemic, the COVID pandemic that we're currently experiencing and seeing hopefully the end of, is a classic example of that, where a lot of public policy discussions are done on the basis of what models predict the virus is going to do and its spread is going to be. This is a fundamentally bad way of doing it because those models are trying to explain and deal with a complex phenomenon, which by definition is unpredictable, uh, and which by definition does not develop in a linear way, but which develops in a way that involves sudden and abrupt discontinuities. And it's those abrupt discontinuities that you want to worry about, because they that may be a catastrophic risk of some kind if it, if it happens. So what you should do rather is try and work out what the probability of an event happening is And then say to yourself, given the consequences, if that event were to happen, am I prepared to take that bet? Suppose, for example, that uh, we're talking about climate change. And suppose the catastrophic risk here is not climate change per se. It's the possibility of an abrupt switch in what you might call the planet's thermostat from a cooler to a warmer setting. Now, We know this can happen because it's happened many times in the geological past, and it's also happened several times in actual recorded human history, uh, that the the Earth became suddenly much colder in just one decade, the 1590s. Now, the reason why that's catastrophic is that if you get a sudden reset in the planet's climate, taking less than two decades, uh, we would not have time to adapt and that would be truly disastrous. It would have immensely disruptive effects, would probably destroy uh, modern civilization. So taking that possibility uh, and thinking about what the results would be, you have to look at the probabilities. Now, if you let's say you think the probability is one in a thousand, are you, go, for the sake of argument, I actually think it's a lot higher than that, but let's say that's what we say it is, it's one in a thousand. Um, are you prepared to take that bet? Are you prepared to say, okay, I'll take 1,000 to 1 odds against an abrupt climate switch happening, but if that I lose that bet and it does happen, the consequences will be the collapse of civilization. Are you prepared to take that bet? That way of thinking clarifies your mind, I, I think, uh, and it's actually a much better guide to policy choices and actions than trying to think about, oh, well, what will the future be like? And if so, what should we do now? Uh, which is is not the way to go. Which is, by the way, I, the reason why I think a lot of the discussion about that particular topic, climate change, is misguided, mm-hmm. because it's all done in terms of what the latest extrapolations uh, of the various committees on climate change say is going to happen and what their critics say is not going to happen. Uh, we should just forget about all that. It's completely irre- irrelevant. It's, a, it's hot air, actually. Uh, what we should focus upon is the odds that certain outcomes will happen 
and see whether or not we're prepared to take and weigh up the balance of the cost on either side and say what um, you know what better we prepared to take. Mm-hmm. And I do agree with you. It's, I think that's a great way to, to sort of clear and reset the mind and, and frame your thinking around this issue. So, so assuming that we we don't want to take the bet, and we here we mean let's say policymakers or, or a collective group that can do something about one of these issues, or at least try to to you know start working on one of the risks. Um, you say that the way the problem should then be approached is to rely on tinkering rather than mega projects. So assuming we're going to bring a solution to the table or try to bring one to the table, what does that mean? Well, what do you mean? When we are faced with a major challenge like this, a possible, you know, huge risk, the temptation is to think that what we need is a Manhattan project or a Apollo project, that what you need is a kind of huge mega project typically funded by government or maybe by very very large corporations to find a solution to the problem the trouble with that is that the the evidence of history is that it is very unlikely to work because basically if you do that what you've done is you put all your eggs in one basket uh, and it may be that it will work as it did with the manhattan project but actually it's more likely that it will not work And in that case, you've got nothing. Furthermore, you are not going to discover as much doing that as you will do if you adopt the approach I advocate, which is the way that technological progress and problem solving has actually worked historically. And this is to have lots and lots of people and groups of people trying things out, tinkering and messing around with various approaches and seeing which ones work and which ones do not. That way, you're much more likely to find or hit upon something that will actually do something. Uh, and so in this context, people, the, the obvious way to think, to, sorry, the obvious conclusion to draw for many people from uh, the phenomenon of global catastrophic risk is that therefore you need more government control, you need more large-scale government projects. Actually, the opposite is true. You need uh, the dispersed discovery procedures of open societies and markets more than ever, because that is what is most likely to produce results. And again, the current pandemic is a case in point, because you didn't have one single big project in one country or even the whole planet to try and come up with a solution. What you got was pretty much every country in the world and every pharmaceutical company in the world trying to work out what to do and pursuing quite different lines of research. And the result is we've come up with a whole series of prophylactics uh, and naturally treatment drugs. Uh, and we've actually, in the process, discovered all kinds of things which will make dealing with any future uh, viral illness much easier, uh, and indeed a whole lot of other illnesses. So that's definitely the way to go. And and on that note, it shouldn't just be about, as you were saying, you know, the success of these projects, but also the failure of them, which I think connects, you know, as far as tinkering, there is success and failure. So I think it connects nicely to, to the next point that you brought up is that we, we have to start getting into the idea that we need to allow for projects that have a low probability of success, but but a massive payoff is successful. Yeah. The way I think of this is sort of the reverse of a global catastrophic risk, right? Whereas yeah. there's a low probability of some catast- catastrophe happening, we also want to have the idea of, you know, a low probability if some something is successful, it can actually have massive payoff or avert catastrophe. Yeah, indeed. I mean, this is uh, the, the, my, one of my favorite science fiction authors, Robert Heinlein, had uh, an example of this in one of his juvenile novels. Uh, and the, the thing was something called the Long Range Foundation, which had the slogan, Bread Cast Upon the Waters. Uh, and the idea was that this would spend money on um, you know, scientific challenges or questions to which there didn't appear to be an answer or where the chance of getting an answer was very, very low. But the result was that you had enormous payoffs if you hit, if you did get an answer. And it's worth doing this. It's worth saying that um, investment markets, contrary to what you know, a lot of the economists would, would have you believe, are actually quite fine with this. There's a whole history of people being prepared to speculate mm-hmm. quite large amounts of money in many cases in projects or uh, endeavors which have a low probability of actually paying off but which if they do pay off will pay off massively give an enormous rate of return and again it's like a bet you might well take let's say you're taking a bet with a thousand one odds but if it pays off uh, you know you you do the come to winning the lottery where the odds are actually a lot longer than a thousand to one it actually is quite rational to take bets like that as long as you don't spend your entire income on it 
interesting because you know the potential sure, the layout is low the potential payoff is actually massive mm-hmm. uh, so all those people who tell you that buying lottery tickets is uh, you know evidence that you're subjecting yourself to an innumeracy tax um are getting the wrong end of the stick it makes perfect sense to do that as long as the says you don't spend your entire income or a large part on doing it mm-hmm. and if you do talk to some venture capitalists uh, they each have their own different philosophies but some of them do have the the, the taking the bet philosophies they'll have a portfolio where some are closer to being sure things than others but other things are just those maybe this is the yeah. next unicorn stock company who knows we'll give it a shot yeah. Exactly. That is, that is exactly it. And you mentioned unicorn stock companies. And the, the point with companies like that is that, uh, as you see in major so-called stock bubbles throughout history, is that most of these companies will actually not make significant money. They'll they'll just lose money, actually. Mm-hmm. But one in a hundred, maybe, will in fact turn out to be the next huge big thing. And so that's that's what you do if you're in that kind of investment. Not for everybody. Some people prefer to buy, you know, lots of safe investments like government debt and so on. Um, but the which is a safe investment until a catastrophic event happens, like the Russian Revolution. You know, the, the uh, uh, but yeah, that that's part of it. So that's the other side of the coin. And also, this is a way of dealing with catastrophic bad events. You know, because uh, if you have some things going on that will have results that are enormously beneficial, even if there's a low chance of they're succeeding, it may well be that that beneficial result is something that will enable you to deal with a catastrophic uh, risk on the other side. So, for example, um, investing money in things like uh, fusion power is worth doing because if it does pay off, it, even though the odds against it are very, very long, mm. uh, in my opinion, if it does pay off, it will solve the world's energy problems. That's a stroke. And it will also uh, do away with the problem we have of, you know, finding an alternative to fossil fuels and preventing global warming. Mm -hmm. So you would have solved another catastrophic risk straight away. So it's worth doing that as a kind of um, insurance policy on the side. As I say, you don't want to spend your entire GDP or a large part of it doing this. That would be foolish because, again, the odds are long. Uh, But on the other hand, it's worth doing. Right. And and one of the last points about how we should think of global catastrophic risk, and it also be our one of our last or probably the last main point of our conversation today as well. And and we did touch on it earlier, but I want to elaborate a little further. You say that we also need to have institutions and ways of living that ultimately consider longer term and transgenerational yeah. trends or consequences and so on. This is something that grows out of um the, the book more generally and my research more generally. It's not specific or purely devoted to that. I do feel that um, over the last two generations, maybe, um, certainly the last 40 to 50 years, my own lifetime, um, there's become in a whole number of areas, politics, economics, um, investment markets, like too much of a focus upon very, very short-term returns. I think corporate horizons, for example, have shrunk dramatically so that CEOs and other senior policymakers in private bodies are typically only thinking at most five years ahead. Whereas a generation ago, um, if you were like the chief executive officer of a large petrochemicals company, for example, you would be thinking you know, 20 to 30 years ahead. Now, uh, I do think that there's a need for developing social institutions which do promote longer-term thinking. Historically, one of the main ones that did that was the family. Uh, people would think dynastically, if you will. And in many parts of the world, that is still the case. People do think very much in terms of multi-generational dynastic projects. Uh, maybe, I know, I'm not quite sure how we would do this, but I do think this is something that uh, social thinkers and social practitioners need to think more about devising institutions of one kind or another which will promote long-term thinking. And there are a number of organizations like the Long Now Foundation and Cathedral Thinking uh, that are uh, trying to work on this. And I think this is work that needs to be encouraged. Yes, I agree. And I, I remember in, in our, our last uh, chat we had together, actually, it's, it's a while ago now, so I don't remember exactly what we were talking about. It's sort of interesting that ties back into another part of uh, you're thinking in, in that last chat, which you, you basically talked about sustainability and, and, and family and, and this point. And, and I think you made some sort of comment where you said we, we, we might find out sooner rather than later that this whole process of, you know, having double income household, outsourcing daycare and schooling to your kids yeah. and basically this sort of more modern idea of what a family unit really is in the narrow sense. We might we might find out that that's not very sustainable for a variety of reasons, narrow and wide. Yes, 
yeah, absolutely. And it, it's related to a number that actually is related to a number of the questions I've touched upon here, um, because it, it w- the modern family system, in particular, the very high levels of labour market participation we now have, is one of the things that has made society uh, more brittle and vulnerable to shocks. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, uh, and that um, relates. To the general question of catastrophic risk, because one of the things we, uh, we we didn't discuss earlier is the whole question of the way in which various things we're doing is making us more vulnerable to that. And the main factor there is the problem or the threat of systemic collapse, which is where you get um, a comp- you have a complicated uh, system which is extremely efficient, but which has absolutely no margin for error. It's mm-hmm. got no redundancy, no spare capacity. Mm-hmm. And a system of that sort is typically highly brittle. If it gets a shock of any kind, it suddenly starts to unravel, and you get a failure in just one part of it, which then causes what's known technically as a cascade failure, Mm -hmm. where it sparks off a whole cascade of failures throughout the entire system, so that the whole thing just collapses. Uh, And I think the supply chain problems we're seeing at the moment uh, with COVID are an example of such a thing. It's quite clear, I think, to me, to me now, that the global supply chain system we have in many cases is simply too complex and too brittle. It doesn't have enough redundancy and spare capacity built into it uh, to be able to cope with a sudden shock like this. And it's going to take quite a while to put it back together again. And so that kind of thing makes the impact of what would otherwise be manageable uh, events much much more severe than they should otherwise be and going back to the original point you made i think yes indeed um family structure and the way in which households relate to the world of paid work and employment and other things uh, is one of the factors that's made modern society more susceptible to uh, shocks of this kind mm-hmm. and i think this pandemic uh is from, from a social institution perspective has given people uh, a bit of a taste like of the diet 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 coke version of, of what you know catastrophe could mean just even yes, something maybe. as simple as a family's routine being interrupted by a daycare or a public school system the way that's set up and all that that in and of itself has shown people as you said where yes. one point of failure can send a bunch of things socially into a spiral yeah exactly and with that we are certainly out of time here so i'm going to move us to our formal wrap-up steve it was great having you on we've talked about a lot uh, in each episode, as you know, I want to make sure the guest ultimately has the last word. So if you were to put a finer point on the conversation, bring us full circle, uh, it would be the answer to this question. So let me officially ask you, what do you hope are ultimately the main takeaways for someone listening to here on if we should worry about global catastrophe and how we should think on it? In other words, if there was one, two, or just a few takeaways, if anything from this conversation, what would you like people to take? That global catastrophic risks are a real thing. And we should be definitely worried about a number of them. Uh, But what we should not do is panic or think that there's nothing we can do about it. Because if we approach this problem in the correct way and think about it in the correct way, there are ways of managing these, these challenges and dealing with them. Excellent. Steve Davies, thank you very much for joining me again on The Curious Task. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Thank you.